Good morning, church. Man, it is great to be with you this morning. Thanks for that great singing. I needed to hear, hear that, and uh, hopefully you did too. If you're visiting this morning, a special welcome to you. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace Christian Fellowship. We are in a summer series in the Psalms this summer. A couple of things before we look at Psalm 24. First thing, just a few quick announcements. Parents with young children, Love that you are here. Love that you are training your kids to, to participate in corporate worship. We value that. We love that. Um, but just a reminder, if you can, to attend to your children quickly if they're struggling to, uh, to be quiet, to, to, to be still. Consider, maybe even consider sitting in the back of the foyer. Just having said all that, I'm a parent. I remember what that season is like. In fact, as a parent, every season is challenging. So please hear me, we're with you, we love you, we're a family, and we're gonna do this together. But that would just help serve others as they attempt to listen to God's word. So again, love, love the diversity here at Grace Christian Fellowship. Number two, the discipleship groups. Um, August 1st, will be the sign-up for our fall discipleship groups. The way those are structured, there's a three-year foundations class. So if you haven't participated in that, that's really how you get started is with the foundations class. It's a three-year track. And then we've created, for those of you that have done that three years, we've actually created a, a, a number of additional one-year tracks that you can do after the foundations track. So those will launch this fall. Like I said, you can sign up for um, either the foundations track or the other tracks beginning August 1st. And oh, by the way, we have a, a track called Soul Care for the whole church. As pastor of Soul Care, I would love to have a bunch of people take that. So, And there's a lot, lots of other great tracks, so. Look forward to that. Well, let me pray as we open up God's word together. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the great privilege of being together to praise your name this morning. Father, we, we come and we want not only to hear about you, but we want to see you. We want to taste and, and see that you're good. We want to experience you and encounter you. And so we pray that you would pour out your spirit, Lord. We, we confess we're needy, needy people, and we ask you to, to meet us this morning. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to stand at the entrance of Riverfront Park, maybe by the Rotary Fountain, and ask people this question, who is the king of glory, I'd probably get a lot of different answers, right? Some might say Elvis Presley, right? Elvis is the king of glory. Others might say Michael Jackson. Or if you're a Mariners fan, you might say Felix Hernandez or LeBron James. <laughs> Matthew, I'm looking at you. Here's the thing, not much has changed in 2,000 years. The Apostle Paul observed the typical Roman citizen answered that question with names like Zeus, Hermes, and Artemis. And a 1,000 years before that, the nation Israel was surrounded by people who answered with names like Dagon, Baal, Ashtoreth, and Marduk. The point is this, answering the question, 
who is the king of glory has always been contested. It's always been disputed. We shouldn't be surprised that this question is contested today because it was contested back in Paul's day. It was contested in King David's day. And so King David writes Psalm 24 to answer the question, who is the king of glory? In Psalm 23, David spoke about God as my shepherd. If you were here last week, you heard that. And now in Psalm 24, David wants to make sure that we know that God is not merely David's shepherd, right? Like true for him, but not true for you and for me. No, David's shepherd is also the king of glory. He's everyone's king of glory. And see, the thing is, David's concern is not primarily intellectual. He doesn't want us to merely know the right answers in our head. He wants us to encounter this king. He wants us to get ready to meet the real God, the true God, the king of glory. And so the main message of Psalm 24 is this, get ready for the king. Get ready for the king. In Psalm 24, David tells us that to get ready for the king, we must realize he is the creator king, we must realize he is the holy king, and we must realize he is the almighty king. Get ready for the king of glory because he's the creator king, the holy king, and the almighty king. First, realize God is the creator king. Look at verses one and two with me. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. The earth and all that fills it belongs to God. Now, if you look there in verse one, you see the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, and that refers to God's name, Yahweh. The name means to be. It refers to his eternal existence. Yahweh, or God, has always existed. He's uncreated, uncaused. And so the world and everything in it are God's. Every square inch, every hill, every tree, every fish, every dog, every person, Governor Inslee, President Biden, President Trump, Vladimir Putin, Xi Jinping, you, me, to everyone and everything, God says, mine. Why? Verse two gives the reason. For or because he has founded it and established it. Since God created the world, He owns it, kind of like how Sting created the song, Every Breath You Take. You remember that? He created it, therefore, he owns it. The first pronoun in verse two is emphatic, he. It's like bold or underscored. And I think David's kind of taken a shot at the creation myths of his day. David's saying, 
It wasn't, creation wasn't a cosmic battle between the gods of water and the gods of order. No, Yahweh, the one God, simply spoke and the universe leapt into existence. That's how he founded the creation in the past. And the other verb there is established, which can refer to something that's done repeatedly which means God created in the past and now sustains his creation in the present. God says, the king of glory, sorry, David says, the king of glory is God, the creator king, who at this very moment gives you and I and everyone life and breath and everything. One implication of verses one and two is that creator and creature, or the creation, are distinct. God is eternal, uncaused, uncreated. He's always existed. And then he spoke at a point in time, and all space, time, and matter came into existence. Creator, creation are distinct. So David wants you to realize that God is your creator king. And that's always been a contested claim. So we shouldn't be surprised it's a contested claim in our day. However, one of the biggest developments in the 20th century was evidence that all space, time, and matter in the universe was created at a particular time in the remote past. Big Bang cosmology. At the time, many cosmologists opposed it because it sounded a little too much like Genesis 1-1 or Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. But the evidence for Big Bang cosmology was and is hard to deny. Yes, there are now other theories. Can you say multiverse? Right? But one author says this, the standard model of the Big Bang remains the most widely affirmed and it is reasonable to regard it as the best currently available option. And from this he concludes, it seems more likely that our physical world has a cause and therefore our physical world is not all that exists. Current science seems to point in the direction of David's claim. God is the creator king. It seems like the best explanation for why anything exists at all. To realize that God is the creator king allows us to live in this world without fear. While the imagery may seem strange in verse two, the emphasis is on the two verbs. He founded and establishes. And these highlight that God's world has a certain stability, a certain predictability. What that means is that God holds his world together. Reminds me of what the New Testament says of King Jesus in Colossians 1. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That doesn't mean that there won't be wildfires or wars, 
but it does mean that God rules his world. And that's why Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? And the answer is yes. For the Christian to realize that God is the creator king is to live with the awareness that this is your father's world. It's easy to forget in a world gone mad, but the famous hymn reminds us of what it looks and sounds like to live in and with this awareness. This is my father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world, the birds their carols raise, the morning light, the lily white, declare their maker's praise. This is my father's world, I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. This is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. So first, David wants you to get ready by realizing that God is your creator king. He made everything. And next, he wants you to get ready by realizing that God is your holy king. God is your holy king. In verse three, David begins with a question. He says this, who shall ascend the, the hill of the Lord? <clears throat> and who shall stand in his holy place? Now these questions may have been used in a liturgy as God's people ascended the hill in Jerusalem, the Jerusalem hill, to visit the tabernacle, right, where God manifests his presence in the ark. So it may have been part of this formal liturgy as the people are ascending the hill of Jerusalem to meet God in the tabernacle. Or it could be that this psalm is, is merely instructing people wherever they are. Whatever it is, whichever it is, it's a staggering thought. Do you hear it? God, the creator king, can be approached. People may stand in his presence. And the other thing, the question implies that this creator king actually wants us to draw near. And the question also implies that there are requirements for approaching God because he is the holy king. He's completely perfect. The word holy means perfect or pure or set apart or unique, one of a kind. And so who can be in this holy king's presence? The answer comes in verse four. Who can stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul 
to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. I've heard the requirements summarized like this. What was required of Israel is required of us. Purity in thought, purity in word, purity in deed, and complete loyalty to the one God. That means no lustful thoughts, only truthful words spoken to build others up, no sex outside marriage, no envying the gifts, relationships, or possessions of others, sacrificial generosity with money, love and devotion to God above everything all the time. And then verse five seems to say that if you do this, then you will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of your salvation. If you keep yourself pure, then you will receive God's blessing. And I wonder how that hits you this morning. I know how it hits me. Taken as legalistic requirements that enable us to earn God's favor, these verses would cause, what's the word? Despair. Or at least they should cause despair if we really understand what the requirements are. They should cause despair if we read them that way. I mean, how many of us here this morning can say we're pure? The first commandment is no other gods before me. I can't keep that for 10 minutes. The good news is that verses four and five are not legalistic requirements that enable us to earn God's favor. Listen, God tells us the holiness required not to leave us in despair, but to lead us back to the purity he requires. Let me say that again. God tells us of the holiness required not to leave us in despair, but to lead us back to the purity he requires to lead us back to him. In verse five, there's the phrase, God of his salvation. And that phrase is used by the psalmist elsewhere, elsewhere to appeal to God in his failure. Oh God, forgive me. Oh God of my salvation. This phrase reminds us that the Israelites failed in purity just like us. But here's the thing. God provides what he requires. God provides what he requires. He provides a way to restore purity. And that way is through sacrifice. In Leviticus 17, he says this, I have given the blood for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. None of us can get ready for the holy king by our own efforts. The holy requirements are meant to lead us back to him. They're meant to lead the Israelites and us 
to our need for a redeemer. And the sacrifices provided for Israel point to that once for all sacrifice of the redeemer, the lamb of God, Jesus Christ. The writer of Hebrews says it like this. For if the blood of bulls, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify or make holy for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Through Jesus Christ, God provides what he requires. What this means is that we get ready for the Holy King by turning from our sin and trusting in Jesus. That turning from sin, the Bible uses the word repentance. Because the holy requirements were not meant to lead us in despair, but to lead us back to purity, back to him. And through Jesus, we're washed, we're cleansed, and purified so that we can approach the Holy King with confidence. Wow. That God is the Holy King has always been a contested claim. Early in Israel's history, the nation lived as if their God didn't exist. You remember back in the book of Judges? And the result was that everyone did what was right in his or her own eyes. If you remember, the result or the consequences were cultural chaos. It shouldn't surprise us that the existence of the Holy King is contested in our day. Philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche famously told the story of the madmen who confronted the unbelievers of his day. God is dead. We have killed him, you and I. What the madman means is that they deny that there's a holy king. And the reason Nietzsche's madman is so worked up is because the unbelievers don't understand the consequences. If there is no God, there is no ultimate standard of truth or morality. It's like the Roadrunner cartoon. Remember the Roadrunner, right? Wiley e. Coyote is running after the Roadrunner, and all of a sudden he runs off the cliff and he's suspended in midair for a moment. You remember that? And then all of a sudden he realizes what's going on and he looks down and he plummets to the ground. Nietzsche's point is that if there is no God, then there's no ground of objective truth or morality. Who's to say what's right or wrong? See, if God is the holy king, and he is, then to value things like humility, equality, compassion, consent, and freedom, that all makes sense. Because that's what God is like. But if there is no holy king, why not value power, racism, dominance, abuse, 
and repression. Who's to say, if there is no holy king, who's to say what one set of values is better than the other? Thankfully, there is a holy king. A king who is completely perfect. Who is completely good. A king who provides what he requires. A king who forgives sin and delights in showing loyal love. And once we realize our need and receive Jesus, our holy king invites us to seek him. In verse six we read, such is the generation of those who seek him, those who see their need and turn back to God to receive what he requires. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And so even more than the saints of old, through the new covenant gift of the Holy Spirit, we can seek God's face. And we do that by looking to Jesus in faith. And we do that very specifically by looking to Jesus on the cross in faith. The one deserving the highest honor willingly endures the highest shame for you and for me. The king of glory takes on flesh and endures the highest shame. We behold him naked, bloody, hanging on a cross. We hear mocking voices and we see this king of glory looking at us in love. There's no one like that. There's no love like that. There's no holiness like that. The holy king humbling himself for you and for me, enduring the highest level of shame. The holy king's righteousness imputed to us, our sin and shame imputed to him. The highest king is the holiest king and the humblest king. At the cross, we see most clearly the glory, the king of glory. And when we really see that, when we look to Jesus by faith and see him on the cross, we realize that God provides everything required. There is nothing more. In Christ, you are rinsed clean. You're counted righteous, you're accepted, you're loved. And that means this, you can rest. You have nothing to prove. You have nothing to earn. Wouldn't it be amazing if we really believe that? Wouldn't that be amazing to actually live as if that were really true? As you look to Jesus Christ in faith, as you see him on the cross, you are transformed 
from one glory to another. As you look to Jesus by faith and rest in him, the Holy Spirit will purify your hands and your heart more and more and more. So far in Psalm 24, we've seen that David wants you to get ready by realizing that God is the king of glory, the one God. He's your creator king and your holy king. And then finally, David wants us to get ready by realizing that God is your almighty king. God is the almighty king. Hard to know for sure in these last verses, but it may refer to a time when the Ark of the Covenant arrives at the gates of the city of Jerusalem, probably after a military victory, right? So, so the army would take the Ark of the Covenant, which was God's manifest presence. The army would take the Ark of the Covenant, and the, the Ark would go with the army, and God would fight for the nation of Israel. And so it may be that this these last verses picture the ark and the army coming back after a victory to the gates of Jerusalem. Does that make sense? You with me? So when the ark arrives, it's as if God arrives. And so the ark settles at the city gate and those leading the, prese- the, the procession knock on the city gate, right? Knock, knock, knock. And they say this, lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. In other words, let us in. Open up, that the king of glory may come in. And those at the gates respond. They ask, who is this king of glory? And then the procession, the guys outside the gates, respond, the Lord. Yahweh, the true God, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. God fights for Israel and gives victory, and now he returns to Jerusalem. And then for emphasis, the request and the response are repeated. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. In case you didn't hear the message, the king of glory is Yahweh. The God who is the creator king, the holy king, is also the almighty king. Nothing is too hard for him. Nothing is too hard for him. And that's always been a contested claim. As slaves in Egypt, it, looks like, it looked like the gods of Egypt were mightier than Yahweh. But God fights for Israel through a series of plagues. Each plague served to target an Egyptian god. For example, turning the Nile waters into blood showed that God, Yahweh, was mightier than the god of the Nile. And On and on it went. And so God, in the Exodus, fights for his people and defeats the gods of Egypt, proving that he is the almighty king, the king of glory. 
It's still a contested claim in our day. Many think this way. If God is the almighty king, why doesn't he do something about evil and suffering? And the short answer is, he has. The longer answer is the main storyline of the Bible. In the beginning, evil entered God's good creation through human rebellion. Right? You remember the story. You know the story. But God promised to use his power to do something about it. He promised to send a savior to redeem the world from sin, suffering, and death. And that savior is Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God stepped into our world and experienced the pain, suffering, and destruction of sin. And if you remember, it brought him to tears. And so we know that he weeps with us in our pain today. But the good news is that Jesus didn't come merely to weep with us. He came to do something about evil, suffering, and death. That's the central message of the Bible. And Jesus says it like this in John 11. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? I don't know if you caught it, but in Jesus saying he's the resurrection of the life, he's claiming divinity and power. He's claiming to be God, the almighty king. And in love, Jesus determines to use his power to save people from death. When Jesus died on the cross, he experienced death in our place so that we could be freed from death. And after three days, Jesus was raised bodily from the dead, demonstrating his power over death, demonstrating that death is defeated, demonstrating that he's the resurrection and the life, demonstrating that nothing is too hard for him. In Jesus, God came to use his power to do something about evil, suffering, and death. And he defeated it, proving that he's the almighty king. Jesus invites Martha to realize who he is when he says, do you believe this? And that's really the question for each one of us this morning. Do you believe that Jesus is the almighty king? To realize that Jesus is your king is to live with an expectation that he fights for you. That doesn't mean he shields us from difficulty or suffering. Jesus is really upfront about what it means to follow him, a life of combat and conflict, right? But he fights for you. Jesus fights for you. He fought for you in his earthly life. He fought for you in his death on the cross. 
He fought for you in his resurrection from the dead. And he fights for you now through prayer. He tells Peter this, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. As the powers of hell shake and sift you, Jesus prays for you. So Jesus fights for you through prayer. Jesus fights for you with his presence. He says this, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will help you. I will strengthen you. I will uphold you with my mighty, righteous right hand. Jesus fights for you through prayer, through his presence, and Jesus fights for you with his promise. He will come again as the conquering king. He will use all his almighty power to destroy evil in every respect and create a new heavens and a new earth. To realize that Jesus is your king is to live with the expectation that he fights for you. Who is the king of glory? Psalm 24 and its broader biblical context answers that the king of glory is the one God who exists eternally in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The one God who is the creator king, the holy king, and the almighty king. That's who is the king of glory. Identifying the true king of glory has always been contested. So it shouldn't surprise us that it's contested in our day. But as we've seen, Psalm 24 provides good reasons to believe that the God of the Bible is the king of glory. The king who provides answers to the deepest questions of life. Questions like, why is there something instead of nothing? Why are some things objectively wrong? And why is there evil and what's the solution to it? But King David writes not primarily to answer intellectual questions as important as those are. David writes so that we get ready to meet the king personally. Whether for the first time this morning or maybe for the 500th time. David wants us to get ready to meet the king. He wants us to realize that God, the true king of glory, is your creator king, your holy king, and your almighty king. Let's pray.